And we'll begin today in Acts chapter 19. If you'll allow me, I want to zoom out as usual and maybe set the stage for what it is that we're going to read in Acts chapter 19. The book of Acts is a transitional passage. It's a transitional book between this amazing thing that Jesus has done through his life, who he is and his work, what he has done. And it's a transition between Jesus walking around and then passing on the traditions and the beliefs and the practices that he had himself to his first followers known as the apostles or disciples. And that transition is complete into what exists today at the end of this book, the church. So this whole book is this story, this book of the Bible is this story of how God has redeemed the people who regularly fail him. In fact, the first story is a story about how a couple people had everything going for them and they still wanted more and they still rebelled against God. And instead of ending the story there like I would have done, God shows mercy over and over and over again until finally God says, I don't want to abandon these people, but instead I want to be with them. I want to be present among them. And so he came in the form of of Jesus, to show us who God is and what God is like, that he is bringing a kingdom to the earth and declaring this good king and his new kingdom is good news. It creates a movement which is described in the book of Acts that goes from the good news, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to basically the gospel 2.0, the work of the gospel, the gospel in action in the book of Acts. It starts in Jerusalem. It starts to spin out toward Judea, then to Samaria, and then even to the ends of the earth, which is the trajectory that begins to take place today. So we want to read in chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, all the way to the end of the chapter, hopefully making some observations about this movement and how you and I are invited to be a part of this great movement that God has begun and completed in Jesus Christ, that he has invited you and I in which to participate. So beginning in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were the ones doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. 
And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world now worship. And we, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of, of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, He dismissed the assembly. What we see is a repetitive cycle that plays out over and over and over again, certainly for the last couple of chapters. A cycle in this movement, as people come to believe in Jesus and are changed by it, something happens. So to begin, if if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're in a good place. I would encourage you to even just from an outsider's perspective, not calling yourself a Christian, I'd love to see you just hold us accountable to this. This movement that, that happens here is what we as people who call themselves followers of Jesus desire to be a part of. Because this playing over and over again for the few chapters 
is a theme that Luke, telling us the story of the first church, wants us to realize. That effectiveness and persecution usually go hand in hand. Since an effective church is a bold church, loyal to Jesus above all. And a bold church is often a church made strong through suffering. Effectiveness and persecution usually go hand in hand. This is a theme that we've seen for the last couple of chapters. Acts 4 and Acts 5 and Acts 6 and Acts chapter 8 all show a persecution that comes from people involved in organized religion. And their loyalty is in their tradition and their practice. They're known as Jews. To the point that even a man by the name of Stephen is killed in Acts chapter 6 that takes this movement and scares, but actually scatters this movement to places it wasn't already going. In chapter 13, the movement gets to Antioch. And it stems from prejudice and envy. And people who are prejudiced and envy toward this, or envious toward this great movement begin to persecute it. In Lystra, in chapter 14, persecution is the result of an ignorant form of paganism. In Philippi, in chapter 16, the persecution comes in the form of a reaction to a victory over a demonic realm. Remember, there was a slave girl, and people were profiting from her oppression. And when Jesus sets this little girl free from this slavery and oppression of this demon, then all of a sudden, they can't profit from it. And Athens, also in chapter 17, the gospel faces persecution of worldly philosophy, people who argue against the view that God is doing something for us in Jesus. And now in Corinth, chapter 18, it comes from the religious Jews that took him to court. And today, as we see in Ephesus, the same. People who believe in something else who are now offended and angry in chapter 19 because of what they believe. So that we're clear, when this good news is rightly proclaimed and it's rightly displayed and people who believe in it are changed by it, there is always a deep and visceral reaction. Such that either amazing and miraculous things happen that you can't explain, and there's this beautiful and amazing and effective change in people's lives, but also such that people who hear this good news that Jesus is king and he's bringing a new kingdom are deeply offended. Something has to be done. They respond in a powerful way. This good news that a kingdom is coming is news that there is a king who is not sending people in his kingdom to die. He is not a tyrant like most kings, but instead, this king actually wants to lay down his own life for the people in his kingdom. And that's incredibly good news for you and for me. So much so that as the movement travels through the hands and feet and the messages, this good news spoken by Paul, there's always a reaction. Now the end result, you can flip forward, you can see in the, the books that follow, right? If you skip through, even in the table of contents, you see there's some letters, some books, we call them epistles, that show up later in this Bible, and they're to Ephesus or the Ephesians. And that's a letter to the church that was planted in this text. Right? There's a, a book to, to the Philippians, and that is a letter to a church that was planted just a chapter or two ago in Philippi. There's letters to Timothy, a character we see here, who becomes a pastor, an elder, a prominent guy in this church in Ephesus. And there's letters to Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, to Galatians, the Colossians. That, is, that would have been lumped in the whole Asia part. Remember that story about Asia? That would include 
Colossae, the book to the Colossians. The end result is this movement established the kingdom of God in the church such that the declaration of God's kingdom is ultimately belonging to the church, the people who call themselves followers of Jesus. But along the way, this movement always has the same result. It makes people amazingly grateful to hear that God is good and not out to kill them. And that good news, I even say to you, that God is not up there trying to destroy you and make you miserable. Instead, God wants to draw you to himself in Jesus. But also, this good news is offensive to people who believe that there is something else at work. That there is another power at play. And this text is an explanation. A cause of that kind of response. The the kind of complaint that comes from this type of riot and this kind of dispersion of the riot, I think all point to key aspects of the gospel that are important for you and I. As we desire to follow Jesus in such a way that, that puts us in light of this movement of the gospel, but also creates momentum forward in the movement. So begin, just some text here. Like, to, I don't know if you caught the, the, the text that we were in last week from 11 uh, all the way to verse 20. People who are even already believers were confessing and divulging secret practices. So I just draw this to your attention just briefly as we jump into this. This is why for us, theology is also discipleship. Learning who God is and what He's done for us in Jesus Christ is not just a cerebral or intellectual practice, but it is actually the means by which as we see God in His right nature and we see who He really is, we begin to let go of the other things that we hold too dearly. And there's a distinction between miracles that God displays among us to show how good and merciful He is and magic, which is actually the attempt of humans to capture the power of the divine and hold it for themselves. And the picture of the gospel is visible here. That if Jesus is only something that you want to benefit from, if you only like God because you hope He'll eventually do good for you, then you don't like God, you think you are God. Instead here, we see not magic and not the power of God harnessed by people for their own glory, but you see miracles and miraculous things taking place that reveal His glory to people. So We're constantly digging in and asking ourselves the question, is there a place that we now hold on to something that is rightly belonging to God? And if so, we let go of it. And that's what Paul does here. And that leads us into the next phase that even though God was doing amazing things and people who were already believers were becoming more faithful, which is our desire as well, verse 21, the tide begins to change. And after all these amazing things happen in verse 21, Paul says he resolves in spirit to pass through Macedonia and then to Achaia and then to go to Jerusalem. The tide begins to turn and Paul begins to leave his three-year missionary stint in Ephesus. And I want to draw your attention to something just that might help introduce what's going on here. You see, so at this particular point, we're in Ephesus, right about in the middle of the map. Now, this is important. Asia, as it's referred to here, it's it's difficult for us. He's not talking about what we know as Asia, which is a continent. But instead, Asia is a state, a province in the Roman Empire. And he was in Achaia, you'll see here, the capital of Achaia was Corinth, which is where we were just recently. Right before then, when he first made the purple, you see the purple uh, arrow as he made his second journey into Macedonia, it was the first time the gospel was proclaimed into Europe, into Philippi, Thessalonica. But then he makes his way across back to Ephesus. 
You see that red Ephesus right in the middle? That's where he is. And Paul says that he wants to go back to Jerusalem. Did you catch that? He wants to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's way over here in the far right corner of this map, on the easternmost part of the Mediterranean Sea. That's where Jerusalem is. And he's right here in Ephesus in the center of the map, and he wants to go to Jerusalem because he tends to make a circle. He's sent out of the church of Antioch to go and start churches, and he responds by by doing that, but then he always circles back to meet with churches that he's already helped start to encourage them. And he wants to encourage and give a gift to Jerusalem. But did you notice what he did instead of going directly to Jerusalem? Did you catch that? He wants to go over to Macedonia. So why would Paul go in the opposite direction toward Macedonia if his ultimate goal was to go to Jerusalem? Why even would he go all the way to Jerusalem if his ultimate goal, as you see later in the next few chapters in this red particular arrow, is Rome? The reason is this. He literally went out of his way to support other churches. The answer we find, it's not here, Luke doesn't tell us, but it comes later. In Romans chapter 15, as he's writing a letter to the Romans, he says, at present, I am going to Jerusalem and I'm bringing aid to the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they in fact owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, then they ought also to be service to them in the material blessings. So when therefore I have completed this that has gone back to Jerusalem and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. For I know that when I come to you will come the fullness of the blessings of Christ." He mentions it again in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So that when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry this gift to Jerusalem. He mentions it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, the left side of the map. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, and they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and even beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So it wasn't here, but briefly Luke mentions that Paul's on his way to Jerusalem, but instead of going directly to Jerusalem, he literally goes out of his way to help other churches. This is not an irrelevant piece of the story. It's particularly important because there's a handful of people who have made a a, a kind of a journey to help us take the gospel to our city, to those who don't know Jesus in our city. And we literally go out of our way to be a part of what God is doing around the world. 
This is why we as a church, I can brag on you guys and for your generosity, we as a church, we give 25% of everything that comes in, we give away 25% of it. 10% goes to church planting all around the world and even in North America. Another 10% goes directly towards planting churches in our region. And another 5% goes toward missions and planting churches that we love and we're specifically wanting to care and take under our wing. And if you ask yourself, why? Why would you do that? Right? Why not take that money and save up for a building? right? Well, we want to do that, but guess what's more important? Going out of our way to see the gospel go to the nations. Where do we learn it? Right here. We literally, like Paul, go out of our way so that ultimately we don't get to the place where we want to be, but so that the glory of God is known amongst the nations. And friend, it will mean going somewhere you, don't, you maybe don't want to go, and maybe talking to a family member or a friend you don't really like to talk to. But make sure you see, this is an integral part of this story. And so he sends Timothy and Erastus to go ahead, probably taking one of those letters to say, hey, take up a collection. We're going to serve this church. You in Macedonia, you are going to serve a church. You don't speak the same language as the people in Jerusalem. You don't know any of them, but you're going to love them and you're going to invest in them. And so also, may we be a group of people who do this. We always invest in what God is doing around the world. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that there's a handful of people from another church hanging out with us today. This is what we do. This is who we are. And we always want to network and be a part of churches, banding together to do more together. But then the tide turns. About that time in verse 23, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way, that is, it it doesn't say Christianity. That isn't a word that was used here. But instead it uses the word, which is probably a direct result of quoting Jesus' words in John 14, 6 that caused this movement to begin. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Meaning that Jesus and believing in Jesus isn't just like a doorway and an entrance into a club that's called Christianity, but instead Jesus has provided in himself a way of being. You are not just a person who thinks and acts differently. You are a new creation because of Jesus. And you are now a part of a new way, a new way of thinking, a new way of living, a new way of believing. But there's a disturbance here. And then for the next 20 verses, Luke outlines some interesting things. He points out some details that may or may not make sense. And he describes for us the cause of this first, the cause of this disturbance. It seems that Whenever the gospel goes out, the derivative of Jesus' words, calling us to a new way, always not only changes hearts, but also makes some people offended and angry. Because whenever you declare, like Jesus, that He is Lord, then there's a natural resistance for many of us who are holding on to something else that we believe is actually Lord. Even if we don't say that's what it is. Make no mistake about it, when Jesus says that all authority under all heaven and all earth has been given to me, he's making a very important claim. One of my favorite Dutch theologians, Abraham Kuyper, puts it this way, Jesus' claims over all of the universe look like this. He says, there is no inch of all of creation and all the universe over which Jesus Christ does not say, mine. There's not an inch 
There's not an inch of your life, of my life, of Sioux Falls, of the world, all of existence. And that's big. Even the Hubble telescope is having a hard time explaining to us how big that really is. And there's not a single inch of it over which Jesus Christ does not say, mine. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn over creation. He's bringing all that exists into a new way of being, a new creation. But oh, oh, do we hold on to those things. Oh, how slowly we let go of the things to which Jesus calls, these are mine. For these people, it was the goddess Artemis the mother goddess. And they loved Artemis. This mother goddess was a big deal. She even had an amazing particular uh, way, of, way of showing herself in the world. Okay, so this is, this is known as the Temple of Artemis. Okay, so this is the, an, an artist rendering. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's that big, right up there like with, and we're talking with things like, like the pyramids, right? This, this is amazing. This was built a few centuries before Jesus would have come around. And the Ephesians really did love their Artemis, so much that they built a massive building. Pliny, one of the historians of the ancient world, tells us that it was 115 meters, so it was 377 feet long. It's 46 meters wide, that's 150 feet wide. Right? So now we're beyond football field range, aren't we? And that building, that structure, was as big as a football field. It was 13 meters tall. It's 40 feet. That's huge. Now just picture with you what what kind of stuff comes along with that. Whenever there's kind of this amazing thing, a tourist attraction, people flock to it. And a culture comes after it. And the first people who got angry, the cause of this argument was that the people who were benefiting from this particular structure and this particular particular way of believing were all of a sudden in danger. And they felt like their livelihood was at risk. Because make no mistake, when you come in and say that Jesus is Lord, all the people who say that something else is Lord all of a sudden realize the power of those claims. Especially when they've gone so far out of their way to build, I mean, a massive stone. Uh, reports tell us that there's such a massive amount of marble around this particular area. What's left, our best guess, is that there's tons of marble pieces left. So this whole structure was likely made mostly of marble. If it wasn't made of marble, it was plated in marble. I mean... Again, there's some places in town that sell you some marble countertops. You can kind of see what a big deal that is. This, this, is, this is it. This is, this is a big deal, a large investment. And what comes along with it is a bunch of just kind of a, I don't know, just a culture of following that results from it. So, for example, this, this, this is something maybe you can, people would be offended by this. Like, um, anytime you travel like to New York City, there's this massive tourist trade that comes, a, a tourist economy built on just being in New York City. And so there's this I Heart NYC logo that this, the city benefits from and people kind of have to pawn it off as their own. And it doesn't really mean anything other than, you know, it's, it's just connected to the tourists. Nobody in New York wants to wear that shirt, right? We see this in South Dakota. When people see and they ask people, South Dakota, they just, all they know about South Dakota is what? There's a mountain over there six hours away with some faces on it? It's kind of small. It's not that impressive. But if you weren't from here, you would just assume that's it. Because there's a kind of a culture built around it. This happens often. This is, this is all sorts of different places. You can identify cities even by their, their particular landmarks. Like you can look at their skyline and go, I know that city. I've seen that. 
If you see a leaning tower, you assume that's Pisa. You see an Eiffel Tower, you assume that's Paris. You don't even have to go there but know the affiliation. That's, that's how famously these things were connected, right? And, and, and it, even to the point where there's some people benefiting from it, and the structure even, he said, was going to come to nothing. Did you catch that? They were afraid of the structure even coming to nothing. So they weren't even just afraid of the goddess Artemis becoming you know, in less repute, but they were afraid that the structure would come to nothing. This is true. You don't believe me? Travel to Arlington, Texas, all right? And there's this massive, probably the most amazing cathedral to American or even worldwide athletics called Texas Stadium. And it's owned by the Dallas Cowboys. You don't believe me? They're not any good and people will go to watch the massive building. <laughs> Same thing. They're not even there. They aren't even there for the right reasons. But there's something, when you invest that much, right? A TV that's like, I don't know, 75 yards long? What? You know, I, got 50, I got 50 inches in my, my living room, and I thought I was doing something. And people flocked to see it. And for these people to hear that Jesus is Lord meant that all their time, energy was threatened. And the life they built around this was threatened. And they get angry. And they begin to declare very loudly that great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Notice very briefly in the cause of this particular outrage, Jesus challenged their financial prosperity. Jesus challenged their fervently held beliefs and values. And Jesus challenged and threatened their civic and national pride. Don't miss those. The three things that bothered them was that Jesus was Lord and therefore threatened their prosperity, threatened their way of living and believing, and threatened their national and civic pride. Notice that the Ephesian believers, the followers of Jesus, including Paul, they didn't lobby to the city authorities. They didn't picket the silversmiths here that were, that were beginning the riot. And they didn't organize a demonstration against the worship of Artemis. They didn't try to be popular in the culture, but instead they simply preached and lived out the message of Jesus. And then they let that power transform the lives around them. And they let that power confront and then push out old ways of thinking. Lest you think that the story is irrelevant, don't miss the three things mentioned here by Luke that were the most offensive and caused this riot. Jesus made some claims that undermined their own experience of comfort and prosperity. Jesus makes claims that undermine, for these people, their own widely held cultural beliefs. And Jesus makes some claims that even confronts their unwavering loyalty and their civic and national pride. Did you catch that? He said, first of all, we're going to come to ruin. Second of all, the building might even come to ruin. But then thirdly, Ephesus. People might not even know that Ephesus is great in. They won't know that Ephesus is the place in Asia where the temple of Artemis has been built. But what happens, the complaints, so here's, you see the cause, but then there's like the complaints of the riot. And the first stems around anger. The first response of resistance toward Jesus being Lord is anger. The gospel makes people angry because it confronts them with their false beliefs and even their sin. The gospel forces you and I to recognize the inadequacy of all the things we hold dear and exposes those things as empty 
and ultimately unable to give us the thing they promise. You see, over and over and over again in the last few chapters, from Athens, even to Jerusalem, there's this mention of idolatry over and over and over again. So over the last couple of weeks, we've kind of mentioned it this way. Like, so, so are you and I tempted to have a, you know, I don't know, a little statue, a little golden or wooden or metal or bronze or silver idol that's in our house that we bow down to and we build our lives around it? No, that's silly, right? We're smarter than that. We would never arrange our furniture, for example, in the living room around like something idolatrous. I don't know, like a television. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't literally build our lives around that, would we? And so idols don't look the same for us. I don't know about you, I'm not tempted when I see like a golden statue, like, oh, that's amazing. I mean, there's, there's a, a replica of the David downtown Sioux Falls. I don't walk by it and go, oh, you know, praise, that, that, that doesn't, that's not what I think. And that isn't a temptation for us. So some of this is different, it has to look different for us. But the desire to build our lives around things that have no power to give us fulfillment, now we're talking. Now we're talking. Because that's something we do. We build our lives and invest our lives into things that ultimately have no ability to give us joy. In fact, the claim of the Gospel is that we have built our lives around things and we've given things that ultimately belong to Jesus. And we desire something from those things that only Jesus can give. Now I've shared with you that list is long, but the top three in American culture is control, comfort, and approval. Almost everything we do is a worship of one of those three idols. Almost everything we do, every investment we make, all our time is built on having control, comfort, or approval. And if any of those things are threatened, boy, we'll go to great lengths to get it back, won't we? We'll do anything to be approved by people, people we don't even like. We don't even like what they stand for, but as, as, a, as the, kinda, I said, the financial prophet Dave Ramsey would say, we'll go into debt to buy stuff to impress people and win the approval of people we don't even like. So that just for that moment, we'll feel approved. But does it work? Does it work? The approval of people is so fleeting. And ultimately, that approval has been given to us freely by God and Jesus Christ so that now we are no longer slaves and strangers to our Creator, but now we come to God and call Him Abba, Daddy, Father. We approach His throne not, not scared. and We don't approach the throne of God with our head down hoping that He might not smite us, but we approach the throne boldly with confidence because of what God has done for us in Jesus. Because we are now approved. The other thing is comfort. And this is a big one particularly for me. Comfort, even now, right? I, I always keep one of these up here right now. It's 73 degrees. But it's humid, isn't it? And you're thinking, oh, this is not characteristic of my life, of comfort, isn't it? I feel it too. But even our best desire for comfort, isn't it always ruined, I don't know, by the seasons? And the thing that we desire the most and we go so far out of our way, and again, if you don't believe me, just wait till your air conditioner breaks and see what you're willing to pay to have it fixed. Whenever that thing happens that robs us of our comfort, we go to great lengths to get it back. That comfort that ultimately has been given to us freely by God and Jesus Christ. 
You skip to the end of the book. Do you know the comforts that the people in Christ now have? The comfort of being in the presence of God forever and ever. A place where there's no more sun. Why? Because the glory of God just lights everything up. There's no more ocean. Why? Because there's no place to drown. No chaos. The city streets look like they've been made out of gold. There's oceans that look like crystal. Like Waterford crystal. That's the kind of comfort that is promised to you and I in Jesus Christ. How about the other things in the world that promise to give us comfort? They just don't last. But we hold on to them oh so tightly. So that response of anger, that response of confusion and closed-mindedness, make no mistake about it, it's violent. And the place where it's most violent isn't necessarily just in a crowd of people who don't like what you're saying. But it's most violent and it's most resistant when you expose it and you see it in your own heart. I mean, it's easy. Isn't it, isn't it easy to see how dumb worshiping the idol Artemis is? I mean, we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but like just to, you know, is anyone like worship Artemis? Anyone know anyone who worships Artemis? I mean, for me, anyone before you read this particular passage this morning ever heard of Artemis? So it's easy to look at that group of people and go, what a bunch of dummies, right? That's silly. Why would they worship that? And it's so easy, it's so visible for us to see that. But what about when something threatens your own sense of approval, your own sense of comfort, and your own feeling of control in your life? You feel like starting a riot, don't you? Isn't that why we say misery loves company? Isn't that why we pout? Isn't that why we have a devastatingly public temper tantrum whenever things don't go our way? It's because that anger and confusion is common to all of us. And when Jesus says, I am Lord, sure, we may not gather together and start a riot, but something inside of us wants to respond in anger. Finally, the the riot is dispersed. I want to point out just something that's really cool here. As it's dispersed, sometimes it goes their way, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes, like in chapter 6, Stephen gets stoned and the authorities kill them. Sometimes the government and the authorities side with the believers. Sometimes they don't. There's really no rhyme or reason. And there's no reason to fret if the government, or I mean, for you and me, if the government sides with the church or the believers, or if they don't, just know that it could go either way. The government's fickle, it comes and goes, but God's reign stays. However, even in this pagan society, these officials testified to the Christian's character. Did you catch the defense that ended up dispersing the crowd? The guy stood up and he says that the believers in Jesus, there weren't thieves, they hadn't stolen anything from the people who worshipped Artemis. And they didn't say anything that was particularly insulting. So despite Demetrius' claims, the Christians had not acted improperly. Just take that to heart for just a moment. What ended up dispelling the crowd was that there was no offense that the people could hold against these believers. Ultimately, there was nothing they could really accuse them of. Oh, that we would be a group of people who boldly proclaim the good news to all that we know, but even when people disagree and don't want any part of it, they can't say that we've done anything wrong. Oh, that we would not resort to a temper tantrum. And all of this, this whole 
amazing thing that Luke tells us about all starts because someone comes in and does something and by believing in Jesus and enough people believing in Jesus, it starts to put the other idols out of business. Let me say this. Oh, that you and I would love Jesus so faithfully that it starts to make sin and idolatry unprofitable in our culture. Oh, that you and I would follow Jesus in such a compelling fashion that people would come alongside us and they would lose their taste for all that the world has to offer. There's this picture, this picture, I think, here of what this idol and what they wanted and what angered them and then the picture of what Jesus offers us in return. And I would ask you to compel, I'm going to compel you to think about it as we kind of wrap up. What's the thing into which you invest the most money? What's the thing into which you invest the most time? What's the thing that you put your most, the most of your energy into? What's the thing that you would die without? If you lost it, you just couldn't go on without it. Because I want to compel you to maybe believe that gods made with human hands are not gods. And that thing has no power to give you what it promises. If your answer is maybe your career, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. It doesn't have the power to give you the approval and the status and the control and the comfort that you think. It doesn't give you what it promises. It doesn't give you that. And the things that we hold to so tightly, they don't have the power to give us what we want. Ultimately, God has given us Jesus to make those things available. Peace, rest, joy, fulfillment, approval, comfort, acceptance. All of those things are found freely in Jesus Christ. And if we would believe, we would set our sights on Him Everything can change. And you know this. That's why every time you go on a vacation, you come back exhausted. Notice that? You know why? Because vacation isn't meant to give you rest. Jesus is meant to be your rest. Your rest is meant to be found in Him. Thank God not in you know, a long, long drawn-out vacation with your in-laws. And you can, paint, you can post the most happy picture of your vacation to Facebook so that everyone will think that it was awesome. But you and I know when you get back, you're exhausted, aren't you? It point, it, doesn't it point to that? Like it doesn't, it doesn't give it. It doesn't give it. You, know, you plan, you invest, and it doesn't give you the rest you want, does it? The job, it never gives you what it promises. It never gives you the thing that you want. It's because Jesus is meant to give it to us. Our Sabbath rest is meant to be found in Him. Our Sabbath rest is meant to be found in Him, not just in front of the TV. And so even now, you're thinking about how awesome your Sunday afternoon nap will be. Can I, I'll beat you to it. Unless your rest is found in Him, that nap will be terribly unsatisfying. It won't be restful. And in fact, most of the things that we call rest or vacation aren't really looking to Christ for rest, but we're actually looking to gluttony, we're looking to slothfulness and self-worship. And who isn't surprised, I mean, when they don't give that? And our idea of vacation isn't finding rest in who we are in Christ, but our idea of vacation is eating a bunch of amazing food and 
drinking what we can and enjoying all of the comforts we can. That feels good. But you ever, know what you, you ever notice what you feel like you want to do as soon as you get back home? You're hungry for the next vacation. For most of us, it's not that we're necessarily not hard workers, but we're so addicted to the slothfulness that comes on Friday at 5 o'clock that we only work hard not so that we can find our identity and purpose in Christ, but so that we can finally find our gluttony and our, our own laziness Friday when we get to clock out. Fill in the blank with whatever it is that excites you and motivates you. It is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And even now, as I point to those things, in your mind, you start, you're, you're, you're starting to get frustrated with me. You're starting to think, no, Jonathan, Sunday afternoon naps are awesome. Sunday afternoons are amazing. My job is awesome. How dare you say that? Do you know who I am? I'm a division manager, right? Even now, you're beginning to think, you don't know how awesome my house is. It's worth all that money, really? And you're going, great are those things. Great are those things. Those things are great, Jonathan. Don't tell me Jesus is better than those things. Those things are great. And you know who you sound a lot like? The people who were crying out about Artemis. You know what they missed out on? They missed out on the joy and the peace that comes in knowing Christ. We get the benefit of the doubt. You know how this story ends, right? This is one of the smaller temples to Artemis that exists today. We don't know if that's the one that used to be the size of a football field. It gets torn down a couple of times because you know how idols work. But then there's this other one that's pretty widely believed by, by historians to be the modern-day location of the original Temple of Artemis that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Look what's left. Could I propose to you the possibility that that which you and I are striving for ultimately will not only be ruined, but it will leave you and I in ruins. And that shiny, beautiful thing that seems so good and seems to offer so much joy is a prime candidate for the bottom of a landfill in a couple of decades. And if you're lucky, it will be sold or bought at a rummage sale. If you're not, it will be destroyed and become some sort of fodder for the next idol to be built. Is it possible that there is greater joy and lasting joy that Jesus offers? Because make no mistake about it, when the gospel goes out, it changes hearts. And effectiveness and persecution usually go hand in hand. And the church of Jesus Christ, those of us who follow Jesus, come to find out that if we are bold and we're loyal to Jesus above all, then we will experience a beautiful harvest of the gospel, but we will also experience persecution and resistance. But a bold church is often a church that's willing to go through it. Let us be a group of people who not only are able to see the idols in the world, but are able to see the idols that exist in our own heart. And that when our own heart rises up to rage war and riot against what God has given us freely in Jesus Christ, let us look to him and realize that he alone satisfies. He alone promises to never forsake, and to never forget. And he alone can give us what the world cannot. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are good. We thank you thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you give to us uh, and promise to us in Jesus Christ that which the world can never give. 
So for some of us, maybe we're in this room and uh, following Jesus seems like a silly thing to do. Would you begin to open our eyes to the possibility that, that whatever it is that we're following or whatever we are believing in now ultimately has no promises that can be fulfilled? They just leave us more hungry. And even the most satisfying experiences, even the most satisfying achievements, even the most satisfying sense of approval pales in comparison to the eternal gift of approval, of acceptance, of treasure, of comfort that comes to us freely and graciously in Jesus Christ. Let us begin to open our eyes to that. If there's maybe some of us, we've never opened our eyes to that. Maybe today is the day that we look to Christ and find that joy in Him. And we begin to let go begin to loosen our grip on the things of this world that ultimately have no power to give us joy. For those of us maybe that uh, we would call ourselves followers, we would call ourselves Christians, but our lives are, are ultimately marked by worshiping other things. Our lives are marked by investing in other things. They're good things. They're, they're not evil. They have no value in and of themselves. God, would you show us those things that we're holding on so tightly to that might be keeping us from having the joy and peace and rest and comfort that comes in you. That there is greater comfort in a treacherous journey with you than there is in anything else. There's greater peace in the valley of the shadow of death knowing that you are with us. You are our rod and our comforter, our staff. You are our provider than there is in having a whole life of prosperity and comfort absent of the peace that comes from knowing you. For what is a profit to gain the entire world if we've lost our soul and to, lock, to have lost the joy that comes from this good thing you've done for us in Jesus Christ? Let us respond to that and see that today, that we would see above all that your name is the name above all names that can heal, that can restore, that can save. May we look now in these moments as we, as we begin to think of all the things that hold us down, that hold us, that hold our hearts, may we begin to look to the only name that is strong enough to save, that is Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, amen.